Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Our air quality still stinks. Hamilton could have sanctioned homeless encampments. Should Hamilton police stop using drones? You're going to learn about belching cows. And the Canadian Open gets overshadowed again. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. I want to start off by thanking all the firefighters and crews working around the clock to keep our communities safe. I want them to know that I'm sure all of us, of all political stripes, have their backs 100%. And as the voice of Premier Doug Ford, as we welcome you back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, online at 900CHML.com, on the Radio Player Canada app. Uh, Listen and subscribe to the GMH podcast as well. Interesting to note that Ontario's emergency forest firefighting budget was cut in 2019 by the Ford government by 67%. That's $142 and change. In many parts of the province and the country, as we know, continue to burn due to all these wildfires, and the smoke is impacting so many people, millions of people. Mike Schreiner is the leader of the Green Party of Ontario and joins us here on GMH. Mike, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning, Rick. I'm doing fine. I hope everyone is staying safe with the hazy skies out there. We're trying our best. I I think we can all agree that the Ford government may not have created the wildfire problem, but it doesn't sound like this government has done much to help stave off these incidents. What's your summation on, on what's being done here provincially? Well, I mean, first of all, I will agree with the premier that I think all political parties, I think all Ontarians, deeply appreciate the work that frontline firefighters are doing. Um, We have firefighters back because we know they're running into danger when we're running away from it. That being said, I mean, I think the fact that the premier, you know, refuses to actually link the severity of these forest fires uh, to the climate crisis and to say that by doing so, we'll take action, one, to make sure our communities are prepared uh, to deal with climate-fueled extreme weather events, and in the case of firefighting, reverse the cuts to the firefighting budget, and also uh, address the fact that we're short 50 crews in Ontario. Uh, and also, you know, immediately we're going to have to be requesting support uh, from firefighters in, in other jurisdictions, um, probably in the U.S., given the fact that, you know, we're seeing such heavy firefighter fires across Canada. And then... The next thing the premier needs to do once we've addressed the immediate emergency is actually start to take steps to reduce climate pollution in this province and to protect the green spaces like the green belt that are so important to help mitigate the severity of these climate fueled events. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because you and, and NDP leader Mart Stiles yesterday brought up that, hey, listen, uh, government of the day, we got to do something about the, the climate emergency. These wildfires are uh, born out of our uh, disinterest with solving this issue. And, and the premier said, well, you're just politicizing this issue. So it sounds like the government's not really in it to win it. Oh, not at all. And, you know, the premier's comments were were just outrageous yesterday. Uh, You know, the fact that, you know, he's basically using the rhetoric um, that's been used for the last 50 years to delay and distract from taking climate action. And and now we're paying the consequences of it. You know, people with asthma and other respiratory illnesses can't go outside. Outdoor activities are being canceled. Um, You know, people's health are negatively being affected. Um, and it's not just forest fires. It's, you know, the the flooding we're experiencing, 
uh, the damage to buildings and infrastructure. The Financial Accountability Officer says just for public infrastructure alone is going to be $26 billion extra expense for us just in the next few years uh, during the rest of this decade. Uh, so for the premier to, to you know, not even acknowledge that we're in a climate emergency when, you know, it's clear that we are, everyone can see it, uh, feel it, we're living it, um, you know, undermines trust in people's confidence in the ability of government to actually address this. And we can do it in ways that help people save money and improve our economy. Mike, we've got about 90 seconds, and, and feel free to use this line in Queen's Park if you like, but it appears, and you brought it up, you know, paving the green belt. It appears the Ford government's plan to tackle wildfires is paving the green belt. Let's get rid of all the trees so they're not burning. <laughs> yeah, which is just completely outrageous and uh, out of touch with the reality of people's everyday lives. I mean, the, the bottom line is is we need to be protecting farmland because that's our food security and the foundation of our food economy. We need to be protecting forests and wetlands because they're going to help absorb excess water from flooding and help mitigate the worst of these climate-fueled weather events. And my goodness, we're going to have to make the investments in ensuring our communities are ready so that our infrastructure is ready to withstand these events and to ensure that we're paying frontline firefighters, you know, good good wages and we have sufficient crews in place so we can combat these events uh, when they do happen. But man, we need to do more to prevent them from happening. And one of the ways to do that is reduce climate pollution. Yet the premier is going to ramp up gas plants, which is only going to make air quality worse and increase climate pollution, uh, heading us in the wrong direction instead of the right direction. Come to think of it, Mike, if you you use that line in the legislature, I want royalties. No, I'm just kidding. I I, I (laughs) appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. And uh, we'll talk down the road. Yeah, take care, Rick. Anytime. Mike Shiner is the leader of the Green Party of Ontario. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Let's focus now on air quality and these wildfire smoking hazards that are having on our health. Headaches, you might have a mild cough, you might have a runny nose, you might have some phlegm that you're producing in your throat, you might have eye, nose, and throat irritation. That is health hazard specialist Dr. Sally Radidzik on some of the symptoms you may be feeling because of the wildfire smoke that has wafted into our area. And how could it not? There's more than 200 wildfires burning in this province and in Quebec. More than 100 of them are out of control. The smoke is having a severe impact, not only here in Hamilton and the GTA in southern Ontario. We've seen them in the northeastern U.S. as well. New York looks apocalyptic. Stephanie Brzezinski is a fire safety educator with Kitty and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Stephanie, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning, Rick. Thank you so much for having Kitty on this morning. I hope you all are doing okay up there. I know it's a pretty uh, difficult situation. It is. It is trying times for many, especially those with respiratory issues. That is for sure. Here in Hamilton, we have uh, open burn bans in place. Uh, students are being kept indoors in some schools. Uh, outdoor activities are being limited in some cases. All good moves, I would think. Absolutely. 100 percent. 
with air quality of this level, hazardous level, you want to limit as much time outdoors as possible. Uh, for example, you mentioned the U.S. My parents are actually in New Jersey, and they were told to hunker down and stay indoors. It is that bad. Um, I believe your air quality health index in the Hamilton area today is around eight, which is uh, very close to the hazardous. It's not good. So you definitely want to stay indoors, um, limit your activity outside. Try not to open the doors in and out of your home to prevent that wildfire smoke from getting inside your house. Yeah, that air quality index actually going to hit nine between 11 and three today in Hamilton. So it's it's even worse than an eight. But for those who are indoors and, and trying to do things right and trying to stay safe, are there warning signs indoors that people should be looking out for? That is a great question, Rick. And unfortunately, the only way you can really monitor your indoor air quality is to have an indoor air quality monitor in your home because the wildfire smoke um, and other air pollutants are, you can't see them with the naked eye. They're very, very minuscule, though they're tiny particles. So you need to have a special monitor to be able to do so. Um, in fact, Kitta just came out this year in Canada. We have a brand new alarm. It's a smoke carbon monoxide and indoor air quality monitor alarm all in one. Um, it's a smart device, so it can connect to your phone via the Kita app, and it actually monitors the air quality inside your home. It's looking for things like temperature, uh, relative humidity, and VOCs. You're going to hear that term a lot lately. VOC, VOC stands for volatile organic compounds. They're harmful airborne irritants, such as this wildfire smoke um, that are in that can cause um, health and safety issues in your home. And VOCs, aside from wildfire smoke, are already found inside the home, uh, which is also very interesting. So for those who do have this sort of smart home technology to identify that there's an issue in the home, is there something to take that out of the home? Yes. Yeah, so what we highly recommend uh, air purifiers. Um, or air filtration systems, um, especially during this time, run your HVAC systems. Normally when you get, if you have an indoor air quality monitor and the alarm sounds, normally we'd recommend opening the windows or doors to get more ventilation. Obviously in this scenario, we do not recommend that because of the wildfire smoke. So what you need to do is actually uh, keep your windows and doors shut at this time because of the smoke. Um, and then make sure, go around your home, um, make sure your HVAC system is running properly. Uh, what everyone needs to do as we go through the next week or so, um, the HVAC filters, make sure you're replacing those because it's going to pick up a lot of particular particulate matter within the home. Um, another thing I mentioned, you know, there's other things within the home that can um, reduce the quality of our air. Uh, gas burning stoves. Scented candles are actually a, another one, and everyday household cleaners that we might think, uh, you know, are safe or getting rid of germs on the counter, but it's actually giving off pollutants inside the home. So limit your use of those or maybe find all natural products um, to, to better help your indoor air quality. Great tips from Stephanie Brzezinski, fire safety educator from Kitta and also an expert on healthy homes. Thanks for making our homes a wee bit healthier this morning, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having us. And again, stay safe, everyone. And for more information on uh, all the products that Kidda has to offer, you can go to their website, K-I-D-D-E dot com. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Deal with this issue. And now it is up to us to make a decision. How are we going to be helping people who have no place to go to be as safe as possible and as secure as possible, given that we have not provided a place to go? It's a very fair question that was asked by Councillor Alex Wilson, because there's an estimated 1,600 people in this community that are currently 
homeless. And as you just heard, the city is wanting you to weigh in on homeless encampments and where they should legally be set up. Give until June 30th to do so, and then staff also will report back to council by August. Joining us now to talk about this is Michelle Baird, Director of Housing Services with the City of Hamilton. Michelle, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Good morning, Rick. It's great to be back. Can we just maybe start with some baseline info? Alex mentioned, you know, 1,600 homeless people in this community. Do you know how many of those are currently in shelters or accessing shelters on a, a regular basis? So, yeah, so of those 1,600, we probably see somewhere in the 300 to 350 range that are in shelters at any one time. Our shelter system uh, quite pressured right now, and certainly we're still seeing flow in and out, though, so that's good. We also have individuals who are likely staying with friends, family, and then we, of course, have individuals who truly are sleeping unsheltered, and those are the individuals that we're seeing in encampments. So I ask that question because let's just say we have 300 people who are, quote-unquote, taken care of. They're in shelters. Obviously, they don't want to be there and don't want to stay there forever, but that leaves about 1,300 other homeless people in our community. If we're looking at a maximum of 50 tents at a sanctioned site, we know there's there's more than one person living in, in many of these tents. So at the maximum, maybe there's, I don't know, 20 of these sanctioned sites. The question is, where do we put these? Uh, so, Rick, that's all part of the work that's underway right now to determine where we're going to put these sanctioned sites. Ultimately, the Engage Hamilton work that's underway is allowing people the opportunity to weigh in with respect to whether or not there's support for the protocol, support to um, move forward with sanctioned sites in some way. We haven't yet decided where those locations will be, but certainly we know we need to provide a place where people have some stability, have the services they need, uh, and dignity in their day-to-day uh, life. Yeah, important factors would have to be, you mentioned it, you know, they, they need uh, a certain level of service, uh, access to transit in many cases, employment opportunities, hopefully as well. Those have to be at the top of the list of, of uh, amenities around wherever these locations are going to be. Absolutely. And some basic pieces like access to a shower, access to running water, toilet, hopefully some hydro. And so really those basic human needs we're trying to meet. Michelle Baird is the Director of Housing Services with the City of Hamilton, talking about uh, homeless encampments and the need for the public to weigh in on what we're going to do on this issue. Could this potentially lead to these tiny home scenarios? So absolutely. There's an option where perhaps we have when we get down the road to a place where we have sanctioned encampments, we would like to see that there are providers that are operating, managing them, if you will, and perhaps one of them becomes one of these uh, tiny shelter, tiny home sort of communities. So there's lots of options out there. Uh, this is not a solution to homelessness by any means. However, we have individuals who are sleeping outside and we need to provide a solution in the meantime. In our final minute together, I would implore the city, if this goes ahead, I would implore the city to implement a hard deadline on the lifespan of these sites because, you know, whether it's a year or whatever the case is, because we have to have a better plan in place. Would you agree with the timeline? Is that going to be part of this? Uh, agree. So I don't know that it's a year, but I think the, the real solution that we need is more affordable housing, housing with support so that we have places for individuals to live and call home. And so we don't want to see this as a permanent solution. All right. That, that is a great answer. Michelle, thank you for your time today. Uh, good luck with this. I know it's a, a complex issue. 
It is. Thanks, Rick. Michelle Baird is the Director of Housing Services with the City of Hamilton. You can have your say in our daily poll question of the day at AM 900 CHML for or against the sanction encampment sites. You can also send me a text at 905-645-3221. Of course, we will continue to follow this issue. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The partnership with Mohawk College has been fantastic right since the beginning of our program back in 2020. Uh, they helped us develop our program with respect to training, with respect to what kind of RPATH units we should be using, and that partnership is ongoing and it's been fantastic. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick waking you up on a Thursday morning. That was the voice of Hamilton Police Sergeant Fabrizio Giuliani on Good Morning Hamilton 10 days ago as we spoke about the uh, Hamilton Police hopes of expanding the use of drones in our community and we found out since 2020 police have used drones 59 times but some people are concerned about things like privacy including the canadian civil liberties association which is calling on hamilton police to stop using these drones daniel konikoff is the interim director of privacy technology and surveillance at the canadian civil liberties association and joins us on gmh daniel good morning how are you Good, how are you? I'm good. Why is the CCLA against uh, police using these drones? So the CCLA is against the police using drones because of the privacy risks that drones cause and sort of bring about just by virtue of existing. Drones are uh, a rather invasive technology. They can surveil from great distances for sustained periods of time. Um, They have the capacity of invading people's personal space and can also diminish people's sense of, of legitimacy uh, in protests or um, in large-scale demonstrations, which in itself can jeopardize their right to free expression. So there are a lot of privacy and rights concerns wrapped up in the use of drones. So one example would be a, you know, we've had these instances where, uh, you know, Frosh Week kind of gets out of hand and, and students at McMaster, you know, have partied <laughs> and, and there's, you know, thousands of them on the street and, and, and police would use drones to kind of surveil the crowd. What is wrong with that? Yeah, so I think that uh, there should just be, you know, a baked in sort of skepticism with these sorts of uh, drag netting bird's eye view sort of glances at any situation, right? Like there are some instances in which drones do make sense, right? And the Hamilton police did sort of raise that in their board uh, report, for example, using drones for search and rescue operations, right? Or using drones in, um, you know, getting ahead of a critical incident in order to make sure that, you know, police know what they're walking into, let's say, um, uh, ahead of time, uh, they get a live video feed of a critical incident. But when it comes to these sorts of big scale events, again, there's that risk of sort of public uh, public anonymity um, and, and and sort of the sustained issue of, of, of personal space. So when you do have a, a large scale event, you know, it's not a matter of uh, do we need to you know, have a police presence at this thing. You can you can achieve similar effects, let's say, um, by having a less sort of broad, uh, sweeping, uh, and sort of all-encompassing form of surveillance there. So when we had uh, Sergeant Giuliani on the show again ten days ago, mm-hmm. you know, he made mention that you know police need a real reason f- to implement the drone program. Is is mm-hmm. part of the problem the reasoning behind that a little too vague? Do you, do you do you want it in black and white to say, hey, we can use them in these sorts of instances? 
Yeah. So I think it's really a big question of, uh, you know, I'm fundamentally skeptical of, of any sort of uh, instances of using um, a sort of technology uh, like this when, you know, we're trying to solve certain public safety problems. And um, it's very good that the Hamilton police did do a privacy impact assessment um, on these drones, uh, on their use of drones. Um, but uh, you know, there's a lot of times we should be asking rather than, you know, should we be using a technology at all? It's that, you know, classic Jurassic Park phrase about, you know, spending so much time wondering whether you could rather than asking whether you you should. Um, and I think that that sort of comes back. I think that that's sort of an important question to ask ourselves. Is, is this a problem that needs technology to be solved? Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Daniel Konikoff. He's the Interim Director of Privacy, Technology and Surveillance with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. And that body is a real problem with Hamilton police using drones in our community. They've done it 59 times since 2020. But obviously the association concerned about privacy. When it comes to Hamilton police, have you received any response from police? Not yet, no. And and do we know whether or not they're even reviewing this program? Or, or obviously, they'd want to expand it, but uh, should they mm-hmm. conduct a review here? Yeah, a great question about review. I believe it was our former Privacy Commissioner of Ontario, Anne Kavukian, who had called for uh, a sort of broader review. And I think I definitely think she's, she's right about that, especially because beyond even Hamilton, I believe um, it was in some uh, CBC Hamilton reporting that uh, police in Niagara and police in Brantford um, haven't been taking the appropriate measures uh, around privacy impact assessments for their use of drones. So um, even if we were to expand that, I think that there is uh, perhaps a broader provincial, broader national conversation that needs to be happening about what you do when bringing in technology of this sort, um, how you evaluate it, which stakeholders are brought to the table to discuss how you go about doing uh, public consultation. Uh, and things of that nature, yeah. In, in our final f- uh, 60 seconds, does Ontario's sure. current privacy commissioner have a role in this? The current privacy commissioner could absolutely have a role in this. Um, it would very much have to do with the uh, IPC's capacity and resources that they have at their disposal. Um, I, I believe they're not investigating this right now, but I think, again, this sort of points to this broader legal issue about um, what is constraining police departments in Ontario uh, into consulting with bodies of experts. And so far there's nothing. So I think um, there's certainly more that can be done um, in the province uh, in terms of having these tighter consultation regulations um, when it comes to to drones and I suppose even technology uh, and and law enforcement in general. Daniel, thanks for bringing this to our attention. We'll certainly uh, do a follow-up with Hamilton Police. Appreciate the time today. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Daniel Konikoff is the Interim Director of Privacy, Technology and Surveillance at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. They want police to stop using their drones. We'll see what police have to say about this issue. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. One factor in this climate emergency is greenhouse gas emissions. We've, we've known about this for years now. Did you know, though, that nearly 14% of all human-caused greenhouse gas emissions around the world come from belching livestock? Yeah, the livestock burps release methane in the atmosphere, which is uh, one source of greenhouse gas emissions. But uh, to the rescue is the University of Guelph, because it is out with some new research 
that is going to help in this regard. And here to help explain what is happening is Dr. Christine Bays, Chair of the Department of Animal Biosciences in the University of Guelph's Ontario Agricultural College. Dr. Bays, good morning. How are you today? Good morning, Rick. So the headline in the University of Guelph News certainly caught my attention. Lower burp cows to be bred with world-leading methods based on U of G research. So what is happening? Well, uh, as we all know, greenhouse gases are uh, a real problem today. Um, and as you mentioned, 14% of Canada's greenhouse gas emissions in 2020 came from the agricultural sector. Um, well, 30% of that comes from the agricultural sector, and a lot of that comes from comes from our, our cows. Uh, cows have a really cool digestive process where microbes and bacteria break down food, which generate nutrients for the animal, and methane uh, is a byproduct. So what we've seen is that there's a lot of variation between individual cows, although they eat the same thing. Some cows produce more methane, uh, and some cows produce less methane and are better able to turn that energy into milk or or growth um, as opposed to just belching it out. So what we've seen is that we can actually genetically select animals uh, that produce less methane. So you're not necessarily tweaking the cow's genes? No, we're just selecting the animals that are more efficient. And with that, what we've seen is that there's about a 500 gram difference in methane production per day between really high emitting cows and really low emitting cows. So if we if we can identify those animals, we can breed them and make sure that they're part of the next generation. So how do you identify these more efficient cows? Are you just counting the number of burps they have in a day? <laughs> we are collecting methane production data, and that lets us generate a, a, a reference population. And we measure cows using what's called a green feed system, which measures gas fluxes including methane from individual animals every time they visit uh, a feed trough. So they're just breathing normally, and uh, we are measuring how much methane they're they're producing. <laughs> so when these uh, cows are being selected, are they being uh, taken to another place? Or are they being studied further? How do you go about making sure that, you know, they're, they're the ones? Well, it's really, it's really a, a complex process, really. We've got this reference population and we use, uh, we look at their DNA. And what we've seen is that there's actually patterns in the DNA that that tell us which animals are uh, associated with, with less methane. So we, there's actually a correlation to the milk samples as well. So if we can measure milk samples on cows, we can actually predict how much methane they're going to produce. Because about 70% uh, of our animals in Canada are registered, and we've got really a lot of milk um, information on them, uh, including the different components of the milk, like fat and protein and uh, sugar, lactose uh, in the milk, we use that, that data to predict animals that are, uh, that are associated with lower methane. So we can actually, um, we don't even have to measure all the cows, we just have to measure a good chunk of them. And we can uh, we can use those patterns to select the, the right animals. We're talking about uh, burping cows with Dr. Christine Bays from the University of Guelph. And her research is uh, going to lead to ultimately a more efficient and I would assume better milk producing cow. Is that the long term goal? Absolutely. And so what is going to be the impact and, and how long is it going to take to get there? We're looking at about, between genetic and nutritional uh, approaches, we're looking at about a 50% reduction in the, uh, in the methane production from dairy cows. So by 2050, we'd, uh, 
we'd expect to have uh, about a 50% reduction in the agricultural, uh, in, in the dairy sector's um, methane production. In total, dairy cows are probably producing one to 3%. So we can, it, it's not much, but we can we can do that part. Most of the, the greenhouse gases, of course, are coming from fossil fuels, but we can do our part in uh, in selecting the best animals. And that reduction is in Canada or is that globally? Well, the, the our reduction, we're aiming for, for reducing the Canadian footprint, but we are working with a lot of international partners who are doing similar things, but they're they're using our methodology as well, uh, in part to uh, to reduce the the methane production in other countries as well. So we're we're really excited about this. We're we're also the first country to be able to have a national genetic evaluation for reduced methane. So we're really happy about that. What kind of uh, feedback have you received from industry officials? Um, very very positive. Uh, the producers are are happy with this because we're not sacrificing. Um, other traits. There's there's actually 60 to 70 different traits that are that are measured on a regular basis in in the Canadian dairy herd, and this is just one additional trait to the palette of uh, of things that we're looking to uh, to improve. So so we're really happy about that because we don't see any real reduction or or negative impacts on those other traits. This is really fascinating stuff. I am so glad we had this discussion, Dr. Bayes. Thanks for your time today. Thanks so much, Ricky. Dr. Christine Bays, the chair of the Department of Animal Biosciences in the University of Guelph's Ontario Agricultural College. If you want more information, search out Resilient Dairy Genome Project, RDGP. It's pretty fascinating stuff. It was established uh, three years ago now, and it's a four-year project that is basically grown, born out of the research that uh, Dr. Bays and other U of G researchers have done. Pretty interesting. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Let's focus our attention to the Canadian Open. It's happening just down the highway at the Oakdale Golf and Country Club in Toronto. But the Canadian Open Championship, this country's national golfing championship, is being overshadowed by the merger between the PGA Tour and Live Golf. And as expected... It is dominating all the talk ahead of the opening round of the Canadian Open. CHML's Dave Woodard takes a deep dive into what's happened and the reaction to this shocking merger. I still hit live. Like, I hit live. Like, I, I hope it goes away. That's Canadian Open defending champion Rory McIlroy, who on Wednesday wasn't asked about repeating as champion for a third year in a row, something no player has done at the Canadian Open, by the way. He was asked about a merger that seemingly came out of left field. It was Tuesday morning when it was announced that the PGA and the DP World Tour would merge with the Live Golf Tour, a Saudi-backed entity that poached players like Brooks Kempka, Phil Mickelson, and Dustin Johnson for eight- and nine-figure bonuses. McElroy says he feels like this will eventually be good for the game of golf, but says he was surprised and upset by the news. Honestly, I've just resigned myself to the fact that this is, you know, this is what's going to happen. Like, this is, it's, it's very hard to keep up with people that have more money than anyone else. Jay Monahan, the commissioner of the PGA, had long rallied against the Live Tour and the Saudi money behind it, saying at last year's Canadian Open that in regards to 9-11, that PGA players have never had to apologize for being a part of the PGA Tour. 
Once the announcement was made, however, Monaghan was singing a different tune and admitted that people will accuse him of speaking out of two sides of his mouth. I recognize everything that, you know, that I've that I've said in the past and in my prior positions. I recognize that people are going to call me a hypocrite, but circumstances do change. And I think that, you know, in looking at the big picture and looking, looking at looking at it this way, that's that's what that's what got us to this point. Brian Taylor is the host of the podcast Real Golf Radio and says for the PGA and for many players, part of the issue with the Live Tour is that it was backed by Saudi money. And that PIF, or Public Investment Fund, will now be a part of the PGA too. They're committed to infusing a lot of cash into the game of golf and perceivably into all of sports. We've seen that they've done with Formula One. There's talk of what they're wanting to do with, with soccer around the world. And so what what is it that they're, what game is they're playing? What's their end goal? I don't know. The timing of the announcements couldn't come at a worse time as the National Open is getting underway today at Oakdale Golf Club in Toronto. It's the only Canadian date on the PGA Tour and Taylor says the merger will dominate the headlines. I hope not. Uh, you know, and that's, it is going to dominate the, the story for sure. And it's going to dominate next week. For the at least you know till the till the golf balls are in the air you know for the U.S. Open as well. As far as who he thinks could win, well, if I was betting money, I probably wouldn't bet on Rory. I would have to think that you know based on what I saw Sunday at the Memorial, Rory had a share of the lead and and uh, just made some uncharacteristic bogeys. And then to have all of this that's going to come piling down on him this week because of this announcement. I just can't imagine he's going to have any sort of mental space to go out there and play his best golf. Now, there are a number of Canadians in the field, including Corey Connors, Taylor Pendrith, and Dundas's own Mackenzie Hughes, all of whom have wins on tour. The last Canadian to win the national championship was Pat Fletcher in 1954. Dave Woodard, 900 CHML News. Thank you to Dave. One other factor that we should keep in mind, too, with the Canadian Open is what we're all kind of dealing with, and that is the poor air quality. Because these golfers are going to be out there um, tr- trying to win this tournament. Now, it's it's not going to be like football players who are running around. I mean, you're not running around on the golf course. But still, the air quality, and as of right now, we're in the you know, six range with a, with a moderate risk. That's going to get up to a nine, a high risk between 11 and three today. But still, being outside for a four-hour round of golf, I'm, I'm sure it's going to be a little taxing for some of these golf pros. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.